So um, it's my privilege to be able to share with you this morning, and uh, I, I really hope that it's going to encourage you. Some of the ladies might have heard something of this message already. It's something that I brought on the ladies' uh, weekend at the beginning of the year, but I just felt it tied in so wonderfully with what Anne shared last week. I felt so inspired by that thing that he brought, um, that God gives us back. He saves us out of darkness, and then he gives us back to his church as a gift, and he wants us to use that gift um, and uh, to see us to see ourselves as a blessing to his church. And so this is a, a look at um, the wonderful prayer that Paul prays um, in Ephesians chapter 3 from verse 14 to 21. And I want to emphasize today the, the wonderful message at the end of that section in the, in the Bible which says, God is able, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or imagine. And so that's what I want to focus on today. But I'm going to take us on a little bit of a, a journey and see what Paul was saying when he wrote this, this passage. So Derek, if you could put up the scripture, I'm just going to read it to you. And it says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Wow, what a rich piece of scripture, isn't it? You, you kind of just read that and you, your mind just begins to boggle at all the complexities and the richness of what Paul was praying for the church. But it's really good when we look at a piece of scripture to understand it in its context. So the first thing I want to just chat about is why was Paul writing this letter to this particular church in Ephesus? And we see something that had happened previously um, to Paul um, had affected uh, his personal situation. And so he's writing to the, the church to encourage them and to remind them of a very important message that he spoke to them when he first uh, established the church. So this letter, if you can go to the next slide, Derek, this letter was written to the Ephesians while Paul was imprisoned in Rome. And what had happened that was that Paul had gone on a strategic visit to Jerusalem and he had an opportunity to preach the gospel to a vast crowd on the side of the mountain where the temple was. And as he was preaching, he was saying this amazing thing that maybe the Jews had never heard before, that the gospel was meant not just for the Jews, but it was for the Gentiles too. Well, that caused an absolute right to think that the Messiah had come for more than just the Jews, that the Messiah was 
was not just about what their heritage as a nation was, but that it was for all nations. And a big riot ensued, and the Romans who were overseeing the, that they were the occupying force at that time, they arrested Paul and they put him in prison. But we know that a, a dilemma arose because Paul was actually, he said, actually, I'm a Roman citizen and you've arrested me because he was born in Turkey. And so we, we know that they became all nervous about the fact that they had arrested Paul. And so Paul makes an appeal to Caesar and says, I want to stand before Caesar himself and to explain what I'm doing and what I'm teaching. And so Paul is transported all the way from Jerusalem to Rome and he's put on in house arrest. And you can see from that picture, he was allowed to roam about the house during the day, uh, but in the night he was chained to a Roman soldier so that he didn't escape before his trial to before Caesar. So that's a bit of the background story for that. And... Um, it's interesting for Paul, I think he must have thought, here I am, I've got an important mission to do, and here I am stuck in jail, I'm, I'm housebound, I can't go about the things that I need to do. And so he did what he, he could do, and he began to write letters. And the amazing thing is, he might have seen that as the most terrible stop to his ministry, and yet we have preserved in the letters that he wrote during his imprisonment the most amazing um, examples and explanations for us in the church today of how we do church and how we can build, help build his church. So I think even though he knew that, uh, that he was in jail, Paul knew that Jesus was still Lord of his life. And if he was a prisoner, he was a prisoner for Jesus. And I want to say in the same way, um, we can apply that to our lives if that's our lens. When we go to work, Yes, we might have a boss, but our real boss is Jesus. Even when we are parents, we are parents for our children, but we are parents for Jesus. We are there for him. Uh, the same with our marriages. And I think this is a principle that can apply to any part of our lives. We, how, does our, how do our lives take on a new significance when we look at it through the lens of my marriage, my work, my friendships? are lived to serve Christ. And it becomes a wonderful freedom that comes in that, uh, that we live for him. And now I want to just take us to something of the, the kind of literary context of this passage, because we've, we're starting reading in chapter 3, and a whole lot has happened up till chapter 3. And Paul explains that God had given him a very special revelation of the fact that the gospel the good news about Jesus wasn't just for the Jews, but it was for every nation. It was for the Gentiles too. And so in verse 10, he says these amazing words. He says that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. God himself is all infinite wisdom and glory. And his great plan of the ages is to reveal this wisdom to us. And I was thinking, how do you pictorially capture such an, a magnificent thing as the wisdom of God? And I was thinking of a kaleidoscope. Did you have those when you were a child? You kind of turned it around and all these little gems shifted and you saw these beautiful, beautiful designs. 
because that's the word that Paul uses when he describes God's wisdom. He calls it manifold. A manifold means something that is intricate, it's complex, and it has great beauty, kaleidoscopic beauty. It's, it's absolutely transforming. And so Paul is saying that God has a wisdom that is beautiful and, and, and quite intricate. And the Greek word there is polypoikilos, if you're interested, if I'm pronouncing it properly. But it's this diverse, interesting thing. But he also says, I want it to be made known to everyone. He said, it's a wonderful wisdom, it's intricate, it's beautiful, but it's not just for God to keep to himself. He said, it's something to be declared. And then he says a very interesting thing. It's to be made known by the church to principalities and powers. And so this explains how God will reveal his wisdom and to whom he reveals it. It's saying that he will reveal it by his work in the church, and he's going to reveal his wisdom to angelic beings. That's when the Bible talks about principalities and powers. It's not talking about earthly kings. It's talking about the angelic world, the, the, the spiritual world, which is very interesting, isn't that? That's kind of just that little statement is put there so simply, but it's quite, wow, what does that mean? The big picture of this is that, of course, God wants to reveal his wisdom to the church, but God doesn't use angels to reveal his wisdom to the church. God uses his church to reveal his wisdom to angelic beings, both the fallen and the faithful angels. And this reminds us that we're called to a far greater calling than just our own individual salvation and sanctification. We are called, God's church, we are called to be the means by which God teaches the universe a lesson, a very, very beautiful lesson. You see, we are surrounded by invisible beings and they look intently upon us. And it's as if Paul is drawing back this invisible curtain and asking us to look into that realm. And we see examples of this with Elisha, when he and his servant were surrounded by the chariots of the kings of Syria, the king of Syria who had come and they said they were going to, they didn't like Elisha because he had, um, they felt he had set them up and he had revealed some of their secrets. And we see that um, Elisha's servant goes out and he sees this whole army coming and Elisha says to him, no, he says, Lord, open his eyes. And suddenly he sees on the mountain ridge all these chariots of fire and they're all these angels on the, on the hilltop. And he says, greater are those that are with us than those that are against us. And we see Paul against or the writer to the Hebrews saying in, ch in chapter 11, he says, uh, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. There is as if there's this angelic host who are watching us, watching our lives. And these angelic beings, they know us perfectly, probably far better than we know them. So what then do they have to learn from us? They have something to learn which makes them watch us with wonder and with awe because they see in us all our weakness 
and all our sin. But they see this God at work upon that wreck to produce results not only wonderful in themselves, but doubly wonderful because of the conditions. Isn't that amazing? They are watching the work of God's grace in our lives. They see who God is, and they understand the magnificence of his power, his glory, and his grace by the transforming work of his Holy Spirit upon the broken and sinful lives of men and women. Isn't that amazing? Your life is a message to the whole universe of the power of the the gospel of Jesus because of the work that he's doing in and through you. I think that's an amazing thing. So Paul says this on the outset, just to give us perspective of our lives, that they count for more than we realize. And in verse 11, he says, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Jesus, Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, ever since the beginning of time, God purposed that man would be reconciled to himself. And this mystery that Paul is speaking about included both the Jews and the Gentiles. Through faith in Jesus, this way had been made open for all people to know God. It wasn't, I know this doesn't really sound that amazing to us because we live in a, in a time when, oh, of course, everyone can know God. But if you think back into those times where if you were a Jew, you were set apart, you had been called apart from all the other nations, and here was this message that, no, this is for everyone. And so Paul says, this is a mystery, how those that were outside of the covenant, those who were outside of God's promises, have been brought near and made to be part and to understand this manifold wisdom of God. You see, I know some people say, oh, the gospel of Jesus is very um, exclusive. But I want to say the gospel of Jesus is incredibly inclusive. It includes everyone. It includes Greek, slave, Jew, um, Gentile, a person from Africa, Asia, America, Australia, wherever you live, Europe, it's inclusive of everyone who puts their trust in the Lord. There's no boundaries of nationality or race or status in society of educated or uneducated. Everyone can come to Jesus through and, and trust him and see his saving power in their lives. Then verse 12 says this, In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with boldness and confidence. The Greek word for boldness is parisia, and it has the idea of freedom of speech. You see, we have freedom to express ourselves before God without fear or shame. Think of a little child who uninhibitedly runs into their father's arms and they sit there and they can talk about their day, they can enjoy cuddling with their dad and and sharing all their deepest worries and thoughts. That's the kind of thing that Jesus has won for us through his his death on the cross. God who is all wise, all powerful, this great almighty God, all glorious, he invites us into the warmth and the assurance of his loving presence. And we can approach not with any reservation, 
but with confidence and a settledness of being at home with our God and still holding him in awe of who he is. There's this amazing tension that we can live in. We can worship him and honor him as the great God, and yet we can have this intimate settledness of being at home with him. This is what Jesus has won for us, that we can approach God with confidence. You see, Jesus has removed the dividing wall. But I think it's quite interesting how often the dividing wall's gone. He's totally accessible. We can go to God at any time. We can be close to him. But I think the wall sometimes is the walls that we can put up. And we have all kinds of things that stop us quietening ourselves and being happy to be in his presence. It, it can be um, fear. can be shame. It can be anger can be exhaustion or busyness. These all become walls that stop us just coming with confidence, coming in that place of rest and ease and assurance into God's presence. And I, I just want to take one little quiet moment. We're just going to stop in the middle while I'm talking. And I just want you to quieten your heart and maybe close your eyes if you need to. And we're just going to say, Lord, are there any ways that... I've put up walls from just coming to you as a young child, coming to you with that assurance. What are the things that are stopping me just resting with you and being sure that I can just talk to you about anything? I'm just going to take a quiet moment. Father, you see each person's heart, you know each person's life, and your arms are open wide. You've never closed the door. And I just want to pray right now, you would settle hearts that may be anxious or distressed or running in the opposite direction. Thank you that your word says you draw us with cords of tenderness, with loving kindness. Won't you settle hearts this morning? Settle them in the assurance that you are, they are loved and that you are always there as a father with arms open wide. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Now I want to look at verse 16. And uh, this is an amazing verse where Paul says, begins to pray for the Ephesian church. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So Paul asked that they would be strengthened with might and that that strength would be the, according to the riches of his glory, which is a most generous measure. You can't, you can't actually think of a, this whole prayer is about superbolies. It's like, how, how can I find a word to describe the magnificence and the size of God's blessing? So he says, according to the riches of his glory, that's how God's going to strengthen you. And that that strength would come through the Holy Spirit and that it would be put into their inner man. 
You see, all of us here have an inner man, not just a physical body. We're not just, uh, and I know that you know that, we're not just physical beings walking around that have just evolved and here we are. We have an inner person, we have a, a spirit, we have a, a soul. And uh, we all understand the importance of the strength of our physical bodies, don't we? That we need to look after our bodies, that we, if, it's, if they're sick, we need to tend them and um, eat good food and, and care for our bodies. But many of us are exceedingly weak in the inner man. Um, if we could see past the physical exterior, we would think, oh, that person is very strong on the outside but they might not be strong on the inside. Or we might see someone who's disabled and broken physically, and yet they're incredibly strong on the inside. The physical is not a representation of the inner man. We take care of our bodies and we tend them, but God says he wants to come and tend our inner person, our inner man. So that is so often left neglected and weak. And uh, God does this by coming with the power of his Holy Spirit to come and heal those areas where we feel weak and broken. And when he comes to tend us, it's not with the meager, scanty reserves, but it's with the abundance of a king who's got everything at his disposal. There's nothing that he can't fix. There's nothing, oh, you look inside your heart and you say, Oh, if only you knew how broken this inner person is. There's nothing he cannot fix. He is able to. God is able to restore and strengthen his children. And he wants to come as we invite him, as we allow him in. He wants to come and build us up and build us up because he has great purpose for our lives. And our brokenness is not our disqualification. Our brokenness is just us to say, God, you see me, you know me. I don't have to pretend with you. And he says, come, I'm going to make you strong on the inside. I'm going to make you able for all the things that I have for you. And he says he does that for the next verse 17. In order that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul asked that Jesus would live in these believers, even as Jesus promised in John 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will, we will come to him and make our home with him. There's this amazing word that Paul uses, it's dwell. Uh, I think it's such a precious word. It's, it's something that's got, I find it hard to find a synonym for it. It's just... It has such a rich sense of coming in, in the ancient Greek. I think it meant making a permanent home with someone. It wasn't like just popping in and out. It was actually saying, I'm moving in and I'm going to be at home in this space. And it's saying, I'm allowing the Lord to come and be at home in my life. And Jesus wants to settle down in your heart, not as a stranger, but as someone who's coming to live there permanently. And in one sense, this indwelling is a gift from God, a sovereign gift that he says, I come, I choose you, and I want to. Remember what Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
if anyone hears my voice, he will open the door and I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. So there's this wonderful knocking that the Lord gives. And yet there's also in a very simple way from our side a personal reception that we have to open the door to the Lord when he knocks. But the reception is not this. It's not like, oh, let me get my house quickly clean because the Lord's coming to visit. He's coming to stay with me. And if he saw the things in some of those back rooms, I don't know that he wants to stay in this house. No, it doesn't work like that. We open the door and we say, Lord, come in. I'm going to trust you that you're not going to go around and say, what's that? I thought so. He doesn't come to judge us. He doesn't come to, to belittle us. He comes to say, I know about that. That's why I've come to visit. I want to help you. I want to strengthen you. So our reception is, a, is saying, I trust you. It's a reliance. It's a submissive trust, not some animated action, not some exalted aspiration, but just an acceptance that the Lord wants to be at home with us. And our, our appropriate response is, please come in and make yourself at home. Please don't think you have to be perfect for Jesus, otherwise he didn't need to die. He takes us just as we are, and he says, I want to come and be with you. Warts and all, I love you. And then Paul goes on to say, being rooted and grounded in love. Because he's going somewhere with this. He's trying to get through to the Ephesians. Do you get how much I love you? Do you get how much God loves you? And he uses two words. He uses the word rooted and a word grounded. The word rooted is the first image. It's like a living tree which lays hold upon the soil. It twists itself around the rocks and it can't be upturned. That's the first image he uses of love. And the second one, he says, is grounded, which is like a building which has been settled um, as a whole. And it's so solidly planted in the ground that even if it gets shaken, the cracks, it won't have any cracks or flaws in the future because the foundations are deeply undergirded. And this is the thing that he says. He says that he wants us to understand God's love in such a way that it is, it's unshakable. You can have something terrible happen in your life and you still know God loves you. That's the kind of understanding and manifold wisdom of the revelation of his love that God wants us to have. Um, and he goes on and he says, he says this, he says, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. You see, God wants us to comprehend this, not only together in this community, because as we understand his love together, because here we, we begin to show each other love, that's how we know God loves us. When you're in a loving community, we are the hands of God that gives someone a hug. We are the mouth that speaks kind words. We are the hands that give help or generosity to one another. We are an expression of God's love. But he's also saying we are part of the universal church. 
He wants the whole church, his whole church from every denomination, every expression, every body uh, that represents his, um, his, his, his family. He wants all of us together to grasp this incredible love that he has. And Paul wanted them to know it in experience, not just in words. So the love of Jesus has width. And I put up that picture of a river because you can see how wide a river is by noticing how much it covers. And God's river of love is so wide that it covers over my sin. It covers over every circumstance of my life. And it works all things together for my good. That's how broad his love is. There is nothing that his love does not cover. And you, you all know your lives. And you think, no, that thing, I don't know. No, that thing, yes. God's love covers everything. It is so wide. And the love of Jesus has length. He says in uh, Jeremiah 31 verse 3, Jeremiah said, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. The love of God doesn't run out. Sometimes as a mum or as a wife or a husband, your patience runs out and you go, Come on now. God doesn't do that. It's just an unending love. It goes on and on and on. You can't outgive him. You can't outlove him. It doesn't end. And the love of Jesus has depth. Philippians 2 tells us the depth of Jesus' love. It says, He made himself to be of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of man. He left his heavenly glory and he was found in an appearance as a man and he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the most humiliating death on, on the cross. And you can't go much lower than that, than death on the cross. And that is how deep the love of Jesus is for us. And the love of Jesus has height. And to see the heights of God's love for us, remember that he has taken us with him and seated us in heavenly places. He doesn't leave us to be in our our sin and in our brokenness. He gives us the authority of his children and we're able to rule and reign with him. In heaven. So to come to any understanding of this amazing love that God has for us, we have to come to the foot of the cross. And in many ways, the cross points in all, the, all directions. It tells us of the, the width of Christ's love, which includes every person. The, the depth of God's love, which will cover any sin. The length of God's love, which goes on for eternity, and the height of God's love that takes us to heaven. And we're going to look at these last two verses, which say that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Among all the great sayings in this prayer, possibly this is the greatest, to be filled with God is a great thing, is it not? To be filled with the fullness of of God is still greater. To be, to be filled with all the fullness of God utterly bewilders the sense and confounds the understanding. I don't, I, don't know, I don't really know how to unpack this verse. It's just there, and that's what it says. 
that God takes us in our frailty, in our weakness, and he says, I'm coming to fill you with the fullness of all that I am. What, what do you say? How do you expand such a verse? Just let it sink in. That's what he's come to do. And with Christ, all of this is possible. We can powerfully and intimately know the presence and person of God in our day-to-day lives. Not just when we come on a Sunday and there's this wonderful time of worship. Every day we can know this powerful presence and fullness of God's being with us. And then he goes on to say, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask. Who is able to bring such a miraculous thing to pass? Only God. Because he can do far beyond our ability to think or ask. You see, you can ask for every good thing that you have ever experienced. And God can do above that. You could think or imagine beyond your experience. Things that you, you think, oh, I wish God could do that for me. Well, God can do above that. You can imagine good things that are beyond your ability to name. God can do above that because God is God and he is able. He can do exceedingly abundantly, so abundantly that it exceeds all kinds of measure and description. We can't even describe what God can do because it's just out of our realm. And sometimes we expect him to do this. Well, Lord, maybe, could you possibly? He says, I'm able to do beyond all you can hope or imagine. But maybe our inner man feels very, and we feel it's hard to believe that. But Paul writes this, he's praying this for the church. He said, guys, I want you to see the wisdom, the amazing thing that God has for you. It's much, much bigger. God is able. It's not about you. It's not about what you can do. It's about what he is able to do in you. And he finishes off by saying, according to the power that works in us. You see, God is able to do this because it's by his power and through his spirit. And all the things that Paul has prayed for in these previous verses, spiritual strength, the indwelling presence of Jesus, experiential knowledge of God's love, and the fullness of God's presence with us. Those belong to us as our inheritance as God's children. And we receive these by simply having faith in Jesus. We don't try. They already are ours. And we ask him to make that real to us. And he ends off by saying to Jesus, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus. The only fitting response after a prayer of that, like that, is to go into a place of absolute uh, worship, to say, God, you are amazing. You are magnificent. Thank you for revealing your manifold wisdom to us. Thank you for making us able to partake in this divine experience of you becoming God with us, living with us, empowering us in our lives.